Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and this is a joy because he is retired from New York University, where he provided shocking value over over two decades. Noah Robini is a little busy. He's writing a book that will do better than good. The movie rights have already been sold before the book's been written with Macro Associates and co-CEO of the Boombus.com. Dr. Robini joins us this morning. Noriel, I want to go right to the heart of it. You say it differently than Lawrence Summers. We have stagflation. We also have debt on top of it, you're looking at your stagflationary debt crisis. Is it here? Uh, it's on its way here. Uh, I agree with Ray Dalio. I agree with Larry Summers and many others who worry that they're going to be overheating because we have a loose monetary and fiscal policy, and that could lead to inflation. But I have a second worry and a third worry. The second worry is that in addition to aggregate demand becoming excessive, we're going to su- suffer supply bottlenecks. And those supply bottlenecks are not the short-term ones driven by, say, unemployment benefits. I've identified nine forces that are much more secular, that like in the 70s represent negative global supply shocks that reduce potential growth, increase the cost of production, and with loose monetary and fiscal policy can lead not only to inflation, but also to stagflation, a combination of inflation and recession like we had in the 1970s when you had two oil shocks. And on top of it, compared to the 70s now, debt ratios, private and public, are much higher. So at that time when the Fed went and fought inflation with Volcker, we had a severe double-dip recession, but we did not have a debt crisis. After the GFC, we had a debt crisis, but we had low inflation because there was a negative demand shock. So we could have the worst of stagflation of the 70s and worse of a debt crisis okay. like after the GFC. Noel, I want to go back to your Istanbul in the old world. I want to go back to Genoa and Venice when John Farrow's ancestors were doing battle with the huge industrial changes of that time, the 14th century. Just for the record, the, they were in Sicily. Time. Okay, well, same thing. <laughs> That's Carry just on, out please. there. Don't Carry on, please. Story, down the right? Adriatic. <laughs> Noriel, we does. have seen over time historic change. How does America do secular stagnation when we have a tech juggernaut like we're observing right now with Apple, Amazon, Google, and that? How do we bring their excellence over to the American experience? Well, uh, even Larry Summers, who was worried about uh, secular stagnation now, worries about uh, inflation. Uh, The trouble is that we're facing a whole problems from a political point of view in terms of a gridlock, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world, because there are lots of people who are left behind. And whether they're voting for Trump or they're voting for Democrats or voting uh, in Europe for a populist party of the right and the left, they're against uh, globalization, they're against uh, technology, they're against hyper-digitalization. But we also live in a world in which, as I pointed out, I worry that in spite of technology maybe as it has been in the last 20 years, a force for deflation, there are other forces that are going to be stagflationary. They're going to be reducing potential growth and increased cost of production. Because of inequality, we have 
deglobalization, where protectionism and everybody wants to defend their own firms and workers, we're going to now see balkanizations of global supply chains and the reshoring of manufacturing from low-cost China to U.S. and Europe. We're now having aging of population, not only U.S., Europe, advanced economies, but also in key emerging markets like China, Korea, East Asia, Russia. We're restricting migration now increasingly from south to north. And migration was something that kept the lead on wage pressures in advanced economies. We're going to have this decoupling between U.S. and China because of this Cold War becoming colder. There's even a risk of a hot war. Decoupling on technology, on trade, data, information, the Internet, financial flows. Uh, global climate change is also stagflationary. Look at what's happening with lack of water, even in California. One-third of all vegetables, two-thirds of all fruits and nuts are producing in uh, California, and now they don't have water. And the farms who have water rights rather sell it for something else. We'll have a shock to, say, food prices. Pandemics uh, that are going to recur and imply self-reliance of countries on their own domestic supply. Cyber attacks are leading again to disruption of uh, production when they occur, or the firms will have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to try to reduce the risk of cyber attacks, and that's going to be another cost. No, yeah, there's final so much point, to get through. Just get to the final point if you can, please. inequality, and the policy is going to be pro-worker, pro-union, pro-wages, and so on, and that's going to put upward pressure on wages. Right. So I knew, these I, are wasn't, I, knew I wasn't going to be able to cut you off there because you were in full flow. Nori, I'll just take a breath just for a second. Yeah. Just want to frame what you're saying because I think it's so important. You're making a supply-side call on the economy here. A lot of people believe that we'll get this supply-side response as the year grows older, that people will start to come back to the workforce from September onwards. You're saying that's not going to develop in the way people anticipate. Can we put some numbers on this, Nouriel? The participation well, rate in America, the degree to you think it will recover, things like that. Just work through it with us. Well, you know, I do believe that there are some short-term supply bottlenecks and maybe in the labor market unemployment benefits, the lack of childcare. The fact that schools have not reopened may have led some workers not wanting to return to the labor market and put up for pressure. But in my view, even when those short-term factors go away, I just described nine factors that have nothing to do with the short-term, have to do with the medium-term. Each one of them is a negative supply shock and is a medium-term. In particular, the last one, this backlash against the inequality implies that in the past, we didn't have the protection of labor. But now look at the first. We had $3 trillion last year care program of fiscal stimulus, then $900 billion in December. The first Biden plan, $1.9 trillion, went mostly to what? Workers, unemployed, partially employed, those left behind. Rightly yeah. so, because there is so much inequality, you cannot do otherwise. But that put the labor in a situation of strength. Right now, given their massive transfer, you can afford waiting longer before you get a lousy job or a burger flipping job. And that tilts the balance of power between labor and capital. And redistribution is going to be not like in the past from labor to capital, but from capital to labor. Let's pick from up on that point, Let's Those are medium-term trends. This is really, really Those important. Lisa, this shift away from capital and the leverage shifting towards labor. That's a huge effort of this administration, and they're pretty open about it. Yeah, and the idea here yeah. is that the Federal Reserve perhaps isn't helping things along. Nouriel, we just have about a minute left, and I'm wondering what the Fed can do in this circumstance that's driven by so many other factors, whether it's supply bottlenecks or rejiggering of the labor market. What can they actually do to forestall the stagflationary push? Well, my view is that the Fed, like other central banks, are in a debt trap 
than if you do and than if you don't. Because if I'm right about overheating and stagflation, they should be tightening policies sooner and get out of tapering right now to avoid inflation getting out of control. But if they were to try to do that, given the stocks of debt that are much higher now than 10, 20, 30 years ago, private and public, then you'll have a crash in the bond market, a crash in the debt market, a crash in the stock market. You're not gonna have a double deep recession like the early 80s. You're gonna have actually a depression. Between doing that and the latter choice of keep on monetizing large fiscal deficits and letting inflation gradually rise, the latter choice is gonna be by default the one they're gonna choose, and therefore inflation is gonna come back, and then stagflation is gonna come yeah. back. So it's not as if the Fed is evil, we are in a debt trap. We're not just in fiscal dominance. Today, we're in a debt trap because both private and public debt are excessive, and each central bank is trapped. And they're not going to be able to exit this unconventional monetary policy Maria, this because been, the markets and the economy are going to crash. This has been so depressing. I always have to tell everybody that you're actually a really happy guy. I always have to tell everyone after the interview's concluded that Rubini, Nuriel usually smiles, Tom. He's a happy guy. Away from these interviews. I'm a happy guy, but I'm realistic about the future. I know Thank that. You. Noriel, it's good to catch up. You sound like Lisa. <laughs> Come back soon. It's good to hear from you, <laughs> sir, so as always. You. Great to have you back in New York. Noriel Rabini there, the CEO of Rabini Macro Associates and the co-CEO of Boombust.com. Right now, Joe Stiglitz on our fixation on secular stagnation. Professor Stiglitz, this goes back to Alvin Hansen and on to Lawrence Summers, and you say, no, 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 it's not secular stagnation. It's a complete focus, a fetishism on growth. Explain to us why secular stagnation is off the mark. Well, the idea of secular stagnation was that there was something wrong with the economy such that even at zero interest rates you could not maintain full employment and that led to the idea that uh, 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 the zero lower bound it was the uh, inability to get interest rates negative that, that prevented an economic recovery my view has always been that the reason the economy was weak in, say, the period after the Great Recession was that we did not have enough fiscal support. It wasn't anything about secular stagnation. It was about a policy failure. Uh, in that particular case, uh, President Obama could not get the support from the Republicans of a sufficient fiscal stimulus to get the economy back into a robust recovery. And so uh, uh, today with President Biden, we've shown that if you give enough fiscal stimulus, you can get a strong economy. The real question facing us today is whether we will be able to get, you might call it the second dose, uh, the broader packages on infrastructure, family care and so forth. Right. That will both be a demand uh, uh, support and a supply support. Well, Joe, that's a political debate that we'll have for another time. You own the little G in economics, a complete focus on the growth rate. With the new debt and deficit buildup that we have and Lawrence Summers' legitimate concerns over secular stagnation, do we risk too low of a growth rate which destabilizes our belief in paying off debt and reducing the deficit? Well, the IMF in its uh, 
World Economic uh, Outlook, WEO, which just came out, actually said that if the Biden plan is adopted, they went ahead and made projections assuming that it would be, our growth would be 7% this year and over 4% next year. So they, like me, are confident that if we give the right uh, uh, support to the economy, we will have growth and that growth will enable us uh, to be in a good position uh, to repay the debt uh, and, and will sustain uh, you know, the, these investments will provide the basis of, of growth over the longer time. Professor Stiglitz, we've been in a perpetual low inflation environment. You were talking about that as the new normal. And basically, you're blaming a, a policy failure on the fiscal front as the reason why. Going forward, though, to shape our inflation debate, how much do we have to look at the supply chain disruptions that we're hearing from almost every company that reports earnings this season? You know, the market is quite good in steering the economy when there's a small adjustment we want a little bit more cars. We want uh, bigger cars, smaller cars. We're always going through these kinds of adjustments. But we've been through an experience that other than times of war, we've never been through, uh, where you transform, shut down large parts of the economy. And the, econ the market doesn't do a very good job in these very sudden uh, transformations, transitions. So, yes, I am not surprised that we are seeing lots of bottlenecks. I actually have enough confidence in the market that most of these bottlenecks will be overcome. You know, you saw that in the case of uh, timber prices. It went way up and then came way down. Is there any fundamental reason why the market economy can't produce as many cars as Americans want to buy? But <laughs> Absolutely. We were complaining before about lack of demand for our cars. So, of course, there's going to be some hiccups as we restart the economy. But the question is, uh, is there any fundamental reason that we should expect uh, this to be other than trans transitory? And I think the answer is no. And I think that's where the IMF is. That's where the Fed is. Uh, I think that's where uh, all those who are not, again, other than those who are trying to uh, uh, oppose the kinds of measures that are that are being proposed to get the economy back on its road. Yeah, but there are some things that have changed. There's a reduction in the emphasis on globalization. There's been a deglobalization that some people have pointed to. There's also in it on the margins been a bit of a shift toward labor away from employee uh, employers which saw for example Boeing restraining itself from firing certain employees because they didn't want to worry about rehiring them when they needed them earlier this morning that announcement came out I mean what do you say to all of these shifts that they're not necessarily fundamentally changing the character in a way that could alter the path of inflation to a higher tilt um, the there will be some uh, increases in prices in the process of that kind of adjustment. But let me say on the on the second point you made, for instance, that uh, the uh, profit margins have been so high that they can easily be absorbed without uh, uh, increasing prices. Uh, that uh, you know, it's one of the one of the disconcerting things happened in the United States over the last. Uh, uh, 15, 20 years has been the decrease in the share of labor. 
and a correction to increase the share of labor would actually be welcome and can be absorbed without uh, any significant mm-hmm. in uh, in in prices. Right. Side of globalization, uh, there's going to be some adjustments, particularly in our trade relations with China. But remember, there are many other emerging markets out there, many developing countries. Right. And uh, if we import a little bit less from China, a little bit more from Vietnam, do we really think that that's going to have right. a big impact on the course of inflation uh, over a significant period of time? Uh, I don't think Joe Stiglitz, I hate to tell you, but it's been 13 years since you and I talked about your courage to write a book with Linda Bilmes on Iraq and tangentially on Afghanistan. Folks, the $3 trillion war was hugely controversial, except everybody had to shut up and read it. That's what you did with Stiglitz and Bilmes. Joe Stiglitz, could you please comment after this incredibly important book about our leaving Afghanistan and the reports that we may leave Iraq? Well, you know, when we wrote the book, The $3 trillion uh, war uh, highlighted the economic cost of that war. Uh, Our own estimates were that the number was greater than $3 trillion. Uh, But we wanted to be on the very conservative side. We now have the evidence. Uh, The cost just to for health care and for uh, um, uh, uh, pay for our veterans who are coming back itself is in the order of magnitude in excess of a couple trillion dollars. So in fact, uh, it has turned out that our estimates were as we intended them to be, vastly conservative. Uh, and uh, so that we focused on the cost of the war. Uh, I think uh, the other side of it, of course, is the benefit of the war. And I'm afraid uh, that was negative. Uh, so that, in fact, uh, if we look at that whole episode, uh, we destabilized the Middle East. Uh, we didn't do what we did, uh, what, what President Bush claimed we were going to do, which was uh, advanced democracy in the Middle East. Professor, always appreciate your time, sir. Good to catch up. Don't be a stranger. Let's talk soon. Joseph Stiglitz there, Columbia University professor of economics and, of course, Nobel Prize winning economist. The cyclical story, the ad revenues really kicked in in a massive way. Big tech delivering some big money. Let's get to Bob Joe, Crossmark Global Investment Chief Investment Officer. Bob, I mentioned YouTube. Revenue up by more than 80% year on year over at YouTube. Just one unit of the overall company that is Alphabet. Now, Bob, I just wonder from your perspective, how difficult is it to tell a client, yeah, we don't own them. We don't own those names. Uh, I'd be uh, in a disappointed situation if I had to tell my client that. Thankfully, we do. But I think the question is, what happens from here? And you've all been alluding to it. That is, we're having amazing corporate earnings in the second quarter. But almost definitionally, in the back half of this year, earnings growth is going to decelerate. Markets love when economic and earnings growth accelerate, not so keen on deceleration. The numbers will still be good, as you folks know, but not as good. And then you bring in all the other factors, like is inflation transitory or not? And I think it's just not as smooth a ride. It's not straight up. It's 
bumpier from here. Bob Dole, at Crossmark, the game is to extrapolate out with a vision out one year, two years, five years, ten years. We talked to the great Steve Auth about this uh, in the last hour. Give me the courage of Robert Dahl right now. How far out are you looking to believe in the extrapolations of Apple, Amazon, or for that matter, McDonald's? Yeah, a lot of it has to do not so much with the companies are doing. They're doing great. They're adapting, to use the words you've all been using uh, so far this morning. And that's good news. The problem is, what happens to the valuation, the multiples, if and as, and I think it's as, interest rates uh, creep higher? That's the trick. The company's businesses are good. They're solid. Uh, they're coming back. They've figured out how to adapt in a, in a slightly different world than we've been in. So it's more about valuations than can the companies execute. Bob, what are the scenarios that you're looking at that could actually cause that to happen, that for interest rates to finally creep higher, as so many expect? Well, you alluded to it a minute ago, uh, Lisa, inflation. Is it transitory or not? My guess is some is, but not all of it. So we have some inflation that's transitory, some that's caused by supply shortages, which hopefully get fixed before too long, but some is real. The era of zero to 2% inflation, in my view, is over. And as a result, um, we're gonna have to get used to a little inflation. Um, you know, Not high single digits, but enough that there's a different valuation parameter. So far, the markets have not agreed with that. The markets have said inflation's transitory, 10-year uh, treasuries at 125 is A-OK, -okay, and P-E ratios where they are. We'll see if that continues. I hope I'm wrong. I hope inflation is totally transitory, and then it'll be uh, you know, onward and upward. Let's say you're right. Let's put some numbers on it. You said not high single digits. What are you looking for, Bob? Something like three, three and a half, those kind of levels to persist. And if that's the case, what do you want to own in this equity market? Yeah, I, I think it's three-ish, or let's call it uh, three-ish as opposed to, you know, one to two. That doesn't sound like a big difference, uh, John, but you know it is when it comes to valuation and, and interest rates. So where do I want to be? I think the counter-trend move has been higher bonds, lower yields, growth stocks, defensive stocks. That's counter-trend. I think you use that uh, period we're experiencing now to beef up on your cyclical exposure, you trim duration if you haven't already done it. The US and increasingly the global economy is in pretty good shape. We're gonna get good uh, economic news, good earnings news, and a little bit of inflation, which to me means slightly higher interest rates. What's the frothiness now, Bob Dahl, the exuberance? I mean, is this a legit bull market or is it still unloved? Oh, it's, it's, it is legit. You know, the sentiment numbers have moved up significantly. They're not in onerous territory, but we've got to keep our eye on it. Yeah. Look, I think that uh, part of the argument is the Tina argument. If I want to get out of stocks, where am I going to go? Cash doesn't give me anything. Bonds, I think, are risky. And so in traditional asset class, I just stick with my equities. Final question from me, Bob, just quickly. I've asked a couple of people this question over the last couple of weeks. I'll ask it of you. What do you want to own into year-end, the Nasdaq or the Russell? Where would your preference be, which index? The Russell into year-end, more cyclicality there um, and uh, lower valuations compared to the Nasdaq. Interesting. So Bob, can we put up. out a banner that Bob Dahl says sell Apple? I don't think we can do no, that. No. I think we can <laughs> no, say no, he says still... own the Russell. That's all. <laughs> I, I, I still own Apple just less than I used to. Tom Keen Roulette, it's always tough. Bob, thank you. Bob Dole, Crossmark Global Investment Chief Investment Officer.
right now, and this is a joy, out of Edinburgh, and of course, a prestigious residency at the University of Chicago in emergency medicine, but far more, Bhakti Hinsadi of Johns Hopkins has done the world tour of really difficult diseases. When you show up in Ghana, when you show up in Nepal, well, it's a different medicine than what we have in America. Dr. Hansadi, uh, welcome. What comes after the Delta variant? Virology 101 told me these things keep changing. Does a pro like you look at the Delta variant as a pathway to what's coming down the road a year or two years out? So unless we decrease the amount of circulating virus, yes, it is likely that the virus will continue to mutate and there'll be an echo, a lambda, and future variants that will be more transmissible, more virulent than those their predecessors. So then how do we approach that? I mean, from a medical basis, we're working on vaccines. What do you want from our politicians within the chaos we have right now? Sure. So within the chaos that we have right now is about decreasing the amount of circulating virus. And so that is a public health challenge and that can be overcome by vaccinating individuals. So that's what we need from our politicians. We need to promote vaccines, decrease transmission of the virus, decrease the amount of circulating virus. So future variants of concern are slower to evolve. And certainly uh, for the path ahead, one certainty will be vaccinations and that that will be ongoing, at least the push to get them. Just want to bring you this news that Pfizer actually reporting earnings, blowing all estimates out of the water. A full year uh, COVID vaccine revenue is estimated to be about $33.5 billion versus the prior forecast of $26 billion. That's the medical side. That is the response that health officials want. But Dr. Hansadi, the concern here is how long are we going to have to mask unmask, remask, based on whatever variant, based on changing scientific evidence versus being able to say, we're done with the pandemic and we can move on? Not until we get to a point where we decrease the transmission of the virus. And, you know, vaccinations will prevent transmission of the virus because it will decrease the likelihood of people um, getting sick and circulating that virus. The other thing is there may still in the future pipeline be therapeutics, which can stop the reproduction of the virus and cure people of the illness before they're able to transmit um, to others. So, you know, I think the remask mask, yes, it's frustrating, but the only way to protect those who are unvaccinated or cannot mount an immune response is for us to continue to go back to what we know works, which is masking. Yeah, but how much has the administration undermined its credibility by giving one uh, bit of guidance a week ago and then completely flipping it on its head this week with a set of recommendations that, by all measures, seems pretty confusing? Sure. So maybe if I flip the dialogue slightly here, right? I mean, on one hand, we think, okay, if the data was the same a week ago that it is today, then yes, that would be undermining their credibility. But what we're actually seeing is responsiveness to evolving data. So on July 1st, I think the U.S. had around 11,000 daily COVID cases. Today, it's around 63,000. Now, that is an exponential rise, and we were not expecting anybody that transmissibility would be so high to the point that multiple counties across the country would be determined as high transmissible or substantial transmission counties. Stay in that chart. On radio right now, we're showing flags for boys. It's the number of uh, countries, 10 countries, that have resilience rankings. The United States is listed fifth. It's a pretty little chart. 
Dr. Hansadi, every pandemic is the same, and I would suggest my reading of Camus or actually scientists like you is all we do is end up isolating socially the unvaccinated, the people rebelling against science as well. Is that where we're heading? We're just going to isolate the unvaccinated? That is not the society that we can live in, right? We cannot um, isolate over 40% of our society. That's just not how it works. We have to like rally, get on the same page. But also we talk about the unvaccinated. Remember there is a substantial number of folks who have underlying medical conditions that cannot mount an immune response. There are medicines that suppress their immune system. Doctor, just quickly, just want to clear something up. Tom has a child at home who's unvaccinated. Lisa does too. I do not. Do we have to wear masks? Who has to wear a mask and who does not have to wear a mask in New York City at the moment? You all have to wear masks. The best thing I heard this week was be vaccinated, act unvaccinated. But each of you can take home the COVID virus to your child, whether you're vaccinated or not. Your child is unvaccinated and thus has a chance of getting sick and transmitting it to others. So that's Lisa I have and two Tom unvaccinated Cameron. children. What about me, doctor? Unvaccinated and rather vaccinated with no children at home. Do I, do I have to wear a mask as well indoors in public spaces? What am I meant to do? What's the guidance? Not what you think. What is the guidance right now? The guidance is in indoor public spaces in areas of high transmission, you need to be wearing a mask, irregardless of your vaccine status. There we go. Thanks for clearing that up. Doctor, thank you. Dr. Bhakti Hansati, Johns Hopkins Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. Right now, uh, our expert on storytelling, David Rubenstein, joins us, of course, peer-to-peer -to -peer tonight, 9 p.m. Uh, in New York. And David, this is just, just, I love that you did this, a conversation with someone creating each and every day. What did you learn from Ms. Rhymes? Well, she's an incredible talent. Uh, she grew up in Chicago, the youngest of six children, went to Dartmouth, and decided to get into writing after she tried her hand at advertising. It turned out she's the greatest uh, writer and producer in, in, in recent Hollywood history. And she's the most powerful force in, in uh, now in Netflix because the show she just produced and wrote, Bridgerton, has just broken all the records for uh, Netflix. So an incredible talent, very nice person. Uh, I've gotten to know her over the years because she was on the Kennedy Center board for six years, and she still helps serve on, on the Kennedy Center uh, Honor Selection Committee. So she's an incredibly smart a uh, good writer, very creative, and uh, a very likable person. Is she her business person, <coughs> or does she have people around her that help her? She's not that focused on money so much as creativity. Um, she does have people, I guess, manage her money and so forth, but she doesn't measure her self-worth by her net worth. Um, she's not trying to be the richest person in Hollywood or something. She's trying to create really good shows, and now she's adopted three young uh, girls, uh, they're now a little bit older than young, and, uh, and, and she's raising them as well as doing all the other things. And she's creating a lot of shows that are just hits. She doesn't seem to have any failures. So um, she's an incredible person, and, uh, and she's very young. She's yeah. under the age of 50. And I must uh, have a confession publicly, clearly. Uh, Bridgerton is also fabulous, and they are all incredibly addictive shows. She is coming and rising at a time of incredible power of content, where content is king and there have been bidding wars. What does she say in the longevity of this trend that we have seen as the streaming wars heat up? Well, remember, Grey's Anatomy's been on now for 18 years. It's still on ABC, even though she's not uh, directly involved so much now. Um, 
she has longstanding uh, ability to kind of write things that will stay the test of time. So she's not a, a one-shot uh, or one-trick pony, as they would say. She's produced a number of shows that have done quite well. She just has the ability to not only produce but write. And writing is very hard. It's a solitary business. She likes to be alone. And during COVID, she could write even more because she was at home, working at home. And she now finds that probably she'll work at home more because it enables her to write more. Sometimes writers get out of being writers. They want to be producers. They want to be moguls. She likes writing more than anything else. I look, David, at, at all of this, and it comes back to your interpretation of the streaming success, whether it's what Ms. Rimes is doing or Ted Lasso or the rest of it. Our interviews, David Rubenstein, is profit is not out there. How do you expand a creative business if nobody really understands where the profit is? Will there be profit? Well, there is a lot of profit in, uh, in streaming, for sure. And of course, uh, Netflix is a very profitable company and has an incredible number of subscribers. It's not clear uh, exactly where it's going to go, but I think that the streaming is the future, and that's one of the reasons she left ABC. She was on Thursday night, the, the entire Thursday night evening programming for ABC for many, many years, and she just left abruptly uh, with some notice, of course, and then she went to uh, Netflix because she saw that as the future, and probably streaming is the future of this kind of uh, uh, creative work. Do you see it as a future without an identifiable profit? The Roberts family made that flip with Comcast to a substantial profit. Do you see streaming doing the same flip to a substantial sustained cash flow? I think it will be uh, uh, very profitable. Uh, clearly, people are more comfortable watching things on their computers and, <clears throat> and then on their you know, televisions. And as we now, now, now know, people are are cutting the cord, so speak, so to speak, on their cable TV subscriptions. People are going to streaming, and I think that's the future. The only thing is that when you're in the investment world, you say, okay, this is the future, but what's the future beyond this? What's after streaming? Sure, clearly, there'll be something beyond streaming. I don't know exactly what it is, but right now, I suspect it's mobile streaming and, and things that you're going to be able to watch on your mobile devices that'll be even uh, better than what we have today. David, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Just really, thank really, uh, really, really interesting. I, I, I just find just wonderful, uh, Lisa, how he does this with so many uh, different things. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.